You are listening to the Family Business Podcast, the podcast aimed at delivering insights to help your family business thrive. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and each week I'll be bringing you interviews from family businesses and their advisors from all over the world. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Family Business Podcast. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and I am really, really excited to bring you this episode. Um, This is a bit of a a preamble, which I'm actually recording after the interview, Um, but I have interviewed today Sir John Timpson of the Timpson Group. Now, our UK audience will know all about Timpsons. They're on pretty much every high street, a very well-known family business here in the UK, um, for our non-UK listeners, um, Sir John does give a, an overview of what the business is. Um, but if you are unfamiliar, I would suggest looking it up uh, and having a look at the type of things that they're up to and also having a look at some of John's books. Um, so, yeah, just wanted to, to record a little bit of a a uh, preamble um, to introduce the show because I was uh, a bit nervous and excited when I started talking to uh, to John, so I just kind of got straight into the show with no real um, intro. Um, I talked to John about um, the business, obviously, um, also about the family side and also his um, fostering, which uh, he did for many years with his late wife, Alex. Um, and uh, I think you'll agree when he starts to talk about that, that you can hear the passion of, of, and how passionate he is about that still. Um, so it was great. It was a really enjoyable interview. I went up to Timpson House um, in Manchester to have a chat with him, and uh, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Well, hello and welcome to the Family Business Podcast, a very special episode indeed this week. I am delighted to be joined by none other than Sir John Timpson. Um, firstly, John, thank you very much for your time no problem. this morning. Um, uh, and perhaps we have a global audience, and so perhaps the best way to start is to give a bit of a background on yourself, the Timpson Group, and um, how you came to be where you are today. Well, shall we start with what the business does now? Because that's Perfect. quite unfamiliar to people who don't live in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. Because, That'd be great. Uh, we describe ourselves as a multiple service business. Um, and... Uh, and it's truly that now. Uh, the core business is shops that do shoe repairs, key cutting, watch repairs, engraving, and a lot of them do dry cleaning, and we do uh, passport photos. So it's, it's lots of services under one roof. Uh-huh. Uh, we've got about a 1,000 plus of those shops. Uh, a lot of them are in supermarkets. Some uh-huh. are on traditional high streets. We've got another business that does photo called Max Spielman, which is on high streets and also in supermarkets as well. Uh, we've got another photo business, which is a franchise business called Snappy Snaps. We've got a dry cleaning business called Johnson's Cleaners. We've got a small dry cleaning business called G's, which is based in London, and has a number of international franchisees. And then we've got a, a locksmith business, which has got lots of vans going around. So, uh-huh. And we've just started a very, very small at the moment, but it's, it's starting to grow a barber's shop, barber's shop in supermarket car park business. Fantastic. So it, it's lots of different things, but the uh-huh. core business is is something which you don't see anywhere, anywhere else in the world because no one developed from shoe repairs quite yeah. as we did. But um, 
So how how do we get there? I guess is the question. Yeah. Or how did I get there? Because it was founded by your um, great grandfather. Well, my great grandfather was the reason why I never had an interview for a job, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> uh, because he started. But he was in shoe retailing. Uh, started eighteen sixties and opened like like you do, one shop mm-hmm. in the centre of Manchester. I've opened a lot more shops around Manchester and then spread from there to Liverpool and Sheffield. So by that time, his son. My grandfather was running the business, who built it up to, oh, by the time I started, 260 shoe shops. But they started to repair, repair shoes, oh, in the in the late 19th century. Mm. But they're not repairing them themselves to start with, but getting various cobblers around who came right. and collect shoes from our shops, brought them back again. Then they started had a central shoe repair place and gradually regional shoe repair depots and then they started to open separate shoe repair shops so when i started in 1960 and there was never much question as whether i would go into the family mm-hmm. business uh it was 260 shoe shops and about a 80 or so shoe repair units right. and uh, but i was really involved in the, the shoe retail side mm. of things did did a buying job, bought lady shoes, became a director far too young, and then we had a, a complete bust up in the boardroom. Yeah. And that's because by then, I mean I was fourth generation, lots of family shareholders all over the place. Most most not involved in the business, but uh some were, and particularly my father's cousin, who mm. was very keen to he was an ambitious guy. Right. He was a director with my father, and I was on the board and in total, there were nine directors, mm-hmm. and cousin got all the other directors on his side, and right. uh, it asked and then forced my father to resign yeah. as chairman. So, how did you feel at that time? Because obviously, you're you're sat on that board, mm. and did it feel like the the whole of the board of directors were against you? And how, how did you manage that with your the relationship with your father? Well, you felt, felt pretty pretty angry as well. Well, it probably brought my father and myself closer together mm. than any time before because uh, I was going to support him. I, I didn't think the, the rest of them knew how to run the business, frankly. Right. Uh, and it was pretty inevitable if we let that all happen. My job wasn't going to last much longer. Mm. And uh, so we weren't going to stand around. My late, late wife, Alex, wouldn't have let me st- stand around because mm-hmm. she was, uh, so you've got to get back in there and sort it. And uh, there were only three things we could have done in that situation. We were a public company. We'd gone public in 1929. Mm-hmm. The family, uh, in total, owned about 55% of the right. shares. But then, of course, the family is now split. So mm-hmm. uh, so there, there were three options. One, you could just you know, give up and let them take over and you know, yeah. find something else to do. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you could go and have a, uh, an extraordinary meeting and try and get the shareholders to back us. Mm-hmm. Uh, as opposed to Uncle and the rest of the directors, probably not a very clever thing to do because right. you know it's not going to do the share price much good and all mm-hmm. that. And the third possibility, which is what we did, was to actually offer our shares to and eventually sell our shares to a possible bidder. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so then we had three months of takeover battle because mm-hmm. there was, it wasn't another one came in to try and outbid, and so. And then it's all over, and mm. I'm still left there. I sort of survived through that lot. Yeah, difficult. But uh, and then I I went to work for elsewhere in the group that uh-huh. bought us. 
And that was in a, a managing director role, wasn't it, with the, with the company? Well, eventually, first of all, I was doing. I, I was I was working for a business called John Collier's, doing not very much. Right. And I went into hand. I went to hand in my notice. Actually, I was, okay. I, I could couldn't see a future with all mm. that. And they said, the chairman said, uh, "Do you live anywhere near Liverpool?" That's uh -huh. a strange question. And <laughs> Wilmslow was near enough for him, so. Uh -huh. Uh, he said, well, look, we've got a business there which sells furs and leather clothing in 60 shops. Uh -huh. And week before last, I fired the chief executive, the finance director, and the uh, buying director. Right. So if you live that close, why don't you go there and look after it for a bit until uh -huh. I can find someone decent? So, wow. <laughs> uh, so that's what I did. And uh, I did that for the best part of two years. And... Uh, then it's okay. It, it taught me an awful lot, mm. uh, and then they asked me to go back and take over from father's cousin to run the, the core business for them. Right. So, okay. so that's how I got back into gotcha. into the what was no longer a family business. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but that was all right. Yeah. And, and then uh, you led a, a management buyout to to get it back into the family yeah. hands. Well, it eventually. I mean. One of the things, if you're part of a group, as I was, that he wants to survive, one of the things to make sure of is that there's somewhere else, some other part of the group is doing worse than you are, uh -huh. and then you're fine. <laughs> yeah. But And that wasn't difficult in, in that group because a lot of businesses were, were, were struggling. It's like when you run away from a bear, you only have to be the second slowest person, don't you? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Exactly. That's, that's, that's absolutely spot on. And... Um, but eventually, of course, the group was doing so badly because it had so many bad performing bits that it eventually got taken over. Mm. And uh, I'd already spoken to uh, – I never knew what a management buyout was, mm. but uh, met some, someone or my, my wife met someone who did and said, you know, why do you talk about it? And so we, we did – I did ask the original group whether they'd sell it to me, and mm -hmm. there was a quick no. But as soon as we were taken over, it suited the new lot to to uh, get get the cash, mm. uh, and so that's how we came out of. And it, it was, but of course, when you do a management buyout. I mean, like you haven't bought it; mm. you've got a got a very small share in it. Yeah, normally, but we had a we had a real piece of luck in the way it was negotiated, and some odd mistake on the way in our favour, and uh -huh. we finished up with eighty uh, percent for the management. Right. So it, it was. And I got over fifty percent of that, so it's getting back to being a family business. Mm. And, uh, yeah. and was that the motivation at that stage? Because obviously, you mentioned when the the, the dispute, shall we say, within the family happened, and um, your dad was effectively forced out. It brought you and your dad closer together. You had those options. If, for example, you'd chosen the shareholder option and they potentially backed the other board, it could possibly have closed off the option for the MBO later on. Yeah, well, your I, appetite I, for it. I mean, at that uh, at that stage when we we had the boardroom bust up, I, mm. no one had ever heard of management buyout. Right. Certainly not me, and I don't think the rest of the world mm. knew anything about it. Ours was basically as, when we did our buyout; it was the second biggest in the UK. Right, okay. it's a very new thing. Mm. Uh, no, I mean, the motivation by that was uh, it was the best way to secure the right future for the business. Mm. And to be fair, uh, right, very top of my my did my wish list was to try and look after the people who had been loyal to the family. Mm -hmm. That all went terribly wrong, frankly, because in the next four 
four years after we did the buyout, I mean, the, the shoe retail business got in, struggled. Yeah. And it, and it was always there thereafter, very clear it was going to struggle. It's, been, mm. it's a bit like if you... Uh, if you're looking at some of the businesses that have got into trouble on the high street recently, mm-hmm. shoe retail was in the same position then oh, yeah. in the in the 80s as a lot of the department stores have been in since since the for the last decade. Yeah, really. and um, so I came to the conclusion that we couldn't afford to open another shop, therefore we couldn't develop the business, and it was maybe going to go into loss. So I ought to sell it. Right. Okay. Which was totally against what I wanted mm. in terms of looking after my people because I and I did sell out in one of the worst, quite the worst moment of the whole career was mm. standing in front of uh, the group down the road from where we're talking now in Withenshaw uh-huh. uh, and telling them that I'd sold the, re- the retail shops because I, I knew in actual fact I'd uh, sort of sealed their fate mm. as far as their, their future was concerned yeah. and they would become redundant. Yeah. Not nice. And I felt... Awful about it, really. But I kept, I kept the shoe repair business, which was then 140 shops, mm-hmm. 145 shops, right. making a bit of money, uh-huh. 300,000. Yeah. Turnover about 6 million. So okay. nice little business, bit yeah. of a hobby. And so that's where we started a completely mm. new, new thing. And that was t- without venture capital. So it become a managed, the other directors, two of them, they had shares. Uh-huh. But, uh, then about three, four years later, I bought bought them out. And, right. Uh, so since 1991, it has truly been a family, family business. business. Yeah, and also it, it's what you do. Um, you spoke earlier about the the diverse range of businesses mm. that you have within the group, and the the scale of the business has grown substantially, hasn't it, since that time? You're talking about 140 odd shops. Then, yeah, we've now got over, over, over two thousand. We've got just about nearly about to clock up to two thousand one hundred. Mm. Which is, it, it, it poses a couple of questions from, from my perspective. Now, as you mentioned, we're in your um, head office um, in, in Wigginshaw. We don't have a head office. Oh, okay. We, we strongly tell uh-huh. her we do not. This is Timson House. Okay. This is where we support. This is part of the support we give to the people working in the branches. Okay. We don't run things. So, so this is part of my um, question, in fact, is, is the culture within... The Timson Group is um, envied. It is something that is very apparent. And I came in this morning. Everybody says hello to you. I got offered a couple of cups of tea from people just walking past as I, as I sat in um, the waiting area. H- how do you scale that culture? Because it's it's not easy to do sometimes on an on an individual site, let alone on two thousand sites. It, and it's something that Timson Group seems to have achieved quite um, not easily. I don't want to say that, but but quite consistently. Well, it's taken us 20 years to get to where we are now. Mm. If you come on a, on a special day, by the way. This is our perfect heard, day. Yes. This is our perfect day here. Uh-huh. We have we only have one perfect day per year. Okay. And because, why do we have it? Because this is the day when every office is perfect. Okay, brilliant. And you might have seen a couple of guys going around with clipboards. Yes. So everyone gets marked. There's a prize for the one with the most perfect Fantastic. office. We do that in the shops as well. We uh-huh. have a, we pick a perfect day for for each of our chains of shops, uh-huh. and on that day, each of those shops in that chain have got to be perfect. Right, okay. it's a way of keeping up standards. Uh-huh. Um, how do we? Well, as I say, we've been doing something a bit different for twenty years, mm. and uh, all started from the fact that um, 
we realize that if the success of this business depends on giving a great service to our customers, doing mm -hmm. a great job, and that the only way we can actually do that in every case is to give the people who serve the customers the freedom to do what they want. Mm -hmm. You can't create great service by having a set of rules, uh, having training courses that say you've got to do it this way and giving people the words they've got to use in every mm -hmm. case. You'll only do it by giving people in the shops, people who serve the customers, the freedom. Right. And so we set off on a campaign to do it. And it took, even the people in the shops were reluct re reluctant to do what we wanted them to do. So, mm. we, so look, just to illustrate what we mean by freedom, you can spend £500 to settle a complaint without mm -hmm. talking to anyone else, yep. even if you started this week. Mm -hmm. Wow. And we also said you can, you can, you've got a price list there, but just treat that as a guide. You mm -hmm. can charge what you want. Mm -hmm. If you've got a customer who deserves a discount, or you want to do something special for somebody, that's fine. Mm -hmm. uh, they were very wary of doing that to start with too, because the problem was that their area manager, or whoever they reported with the area manager in those days, um, they thought was going that would tell them off if they mm. started to do what I yeah. wanted them to do, which is quite right. That's what would have happened. So we had to um, spend a lot of time trying to get the the whole managed people in management roles, all the bosses, to change the way they were being a boss. Okay, which took five years. Mm. No boss in our, in this business is allowed to tell anyone what to do. Right. Okay. We which is counterintuitive. For the term boss, isn't it? Yeah, it's, boss, it is a new yeah. skill set. And, and, and they, initially, that, they, they said to start with, or they're saying, how can I be responsible for the job that you've given me to do if yeah. I can't tell my people what to do? Um, but anyway, we explained that being a being a boss is about helping the people who work for you to be the very best they can be. Mm -hmm. Your job is to look after your people. Yeah. Uh, but then the other thing we discovered is. To run a business the way we do, it only works if you've got the right people, mm -hmm. the right personalities. Yep. So we had to train train everybody to, when they're interviewing, to, to recruit on personality and mm -hmm. nothing but personality. Fantastic. And am I right in thinking that the Mr. Men make an appearance in... That's where that's where the, my little Mr. Men came in. That was my uh, initial device to right. uh, explain to people what I meant by that. Uh -huh. So they have this interview form, which has got uh, Mrs. Happy, Mr. Keen, Mr... Mr. Punctual and so uh -huh. on, and then there's another lot who are Mr. Scruffy, Mr. Dull, right, and uh, Mr. Dodgy, uh -huh. and <laughs> and you you just all I'm saying is just get them to talk. Don't I'm not interested in what their CV is mm -hmm. or what they've written on their application form or the normal sort of questions. Just get them to talk about themselves. Mm. You know, what do you do at the weekends? What, what, so they're revealing what, what their personality is like. Yeah. And then tick the boxes that most fit, most fit the person you're uh, talking to. You, you get an impression through those type of conversations about someone's values as well, don't you? That they're, All of that. You know, if their um, weekend activities are not particularly yeah. inspiring, then they might not be the type of yeah. person that would inspire and, a right And then if, you, if they tick it off boxes, we say, please come and work in one of our shops for half a day with someone who knows what. Actually, I was out around shops yesterday and there was one person who was working half a day and I checked up last night mm -hmm. to see whether they had employed her. Right. And I was very pleased to find that they hadn't. 
Ah, okay. She didn't look me in the eye. She was a bit sort of, she would not have been mm. anywhere near. I mean, we describe it another way. As we, we want a business full of nines and tens, people mm-hmm. who, who rate nine or ten out of ten. Yeah. And, I mean, too many of us put up with the sixes and the sevens. Mm. That's not good enough for us. Right. And it's not good enough for the nines and tens we've already got because if you're going to look after your people, which is a, that, the very important job that the boss has got to do, yeah. one of the most important things you could do to look after them is to make sure they don't have to work alongside people who are going to have sickies, pretty, pretty boring, mm-hmm. complaining all the time, yeah. and generally a pain in the neck. Because yeah. uh, so, it can bring you down. If you surround yourself with negativity, yeah, it can yeah, bring you exactly. down. Exactly. So... So another important job of the boss is to get rid of the people who are no good. Mm. Yeah. We think that's very important. Mm-hmm. And they've got the freedom again to do that. Yeah, through, yeah. Through I, I mean, I, yeah, we, we try and do it by an honest conversation. Mm-hmm. We don't like warning letters or performance management programs. Right. We like just to sit down and to explain to someone we've, we've, we've made a mistake. Uh-huh. I mean, we, we obviously... I don't think you're right for this business. Uh-huh. I don't think your best will ever be good, good enough for us. Right. We've, made, we've both made the wrong choice. I think it's right that we should help you to find your happiness elsewhere uh-huh. and we'll be as generous as we can, yeah. but we want to get on with it. Fine. And, and, that, and that, that works mm. in lots of cases. It's, yeah. it's not what the traditional HR department... Yeah, I can imagine will. HR professionals listening to this going, no, <laughs> yeah, this because, process. But, but we have, we don't call it HR. We've got a colleague support, uh-huh. who are there to support our colleagues, to help them make sure we've got really great people right yep. through the business mm-hmm. and look after them. And a lot of that a lot of that involves helping people with problems which have nothing to do with work. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're there for them when yeah. you know, went through stress, divorce, money problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a hardship fund as well, don't yeah, you, within we, the, the organisation? Yeah, if someone, if someone runs into... Uh, into financial difficulties, as long as it's not too, too big, mm. uh, we'll lend them, the, lend them the money. We'd wow. rather do that because we, we only have two rules for the people in the shops. Mm-hmm. One is look the part, yeah, and the other is put the money in the till. Mm-hmm. And we, the hardship fund, helps them solve their problem without having to break rule number two. Yeah, very yeah. good point. And there's holiday homes, and everyone gets their birthday off. Everyone's, everyone's, everyone's had their birthday off since. Oh, now for 14 years we've been doing that. Mm. It's been the 15th year. Wow. We've, and we, we, we decided it was, a, because we wanted a centenary, we decided it was 100 years since we started repairing shoes right. in, in 2003, and just part of the celebration was to give everyone their birthday off. Ah, and it was so popular that uh, that's, that happens every time. We also now give parents the day off if one of their children is having their very first day at school. Oh, fantastic. Which is... Uh, a new one that we've started. Yeah, yeah. The holiday homes have been really popular. It, we we started with one near Blackpool. Mm-hmm. Then we got another one which was abroad. But we've now got we've now got nineteen holiday wow. homes, all 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 scattered around the, yeah. the UK. Yeah, fantastic. And there's a process for them to do they just book on and, and yeah, yeah. they can go. Yeah, we. Uh, uh, Around September, for uh-huh. we, we book up for next year, and uh, you've got to be a nine or a ten generator. Uh-huh. Or sometimes there might be. There sometimes we use the holiday homes to help people who've got difficult problems at mm. home and yeah. to give them give them a break. But normally it's just a sort of that's what you want to do. Mm. You're a great. Well, met met one who'd been yesterday. 
to uh, holiday home at Great Yarmouth, um, half term. So uh, loved it. Yeah, loved it. And it is, it's that's why we keep getting more and more because it's such a popular benefit. Mm. Yeah, and that's where you get the the desire from people to be the nines and tens is because if well, it, you look it, after it, them, they're going to do a great it's job. It's sort of you. the whole thing sticks together. I mean, it, it's just a sort of like a club of people who yeah. like minded people. Mm. Uh, and you get the the feel of that here when when you're here as well. It's it's a, a very vibrant um, environment to to be in. Um, if we can, I'd like to to just take a step back to when you joined mm -hmm. the business because did you come straight into the business? You, you had some time at Clark's. Well, I, I, uh, I, my father wanted me to be an accountant, so he sent me into an accountant's office at the age of 17. Right. And so I left school a year early. But fortunately, I got some A-levels, which came in handy later. Mm -hmm. uh, I hated accountancy. Mm. And I walked out after about six weeks. Okay. And so my father said, okay, we better work in the business then. So <laughs> I got I started as a shop assistant in a shoe shop in Altrincham, and then I spent a little bit of time in one of the repair factory where I was useless. I'm, I'm practically absolutely hopeless. Right. <laughs> uh, but I worked on the counter there, served customers. That was all right. Yeah. And uh, so I spent a year flowing. But during, during that period, I applied to go to university. Mm -hmm. So I went to Nottingham University for well, three years doing industrial economics, as it happens, uh, working working in shops and doing stuff during the, during the university holidays. Mm -hmm. And then I went for just about six months on a graduate training scheme at C&J Clark's right. down in Street, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, I, I did actually have to work in a factory, but right. I, they gave me the simplest possible job they could find, which uh -huh. didn't involve any machinery. Right. Because, <laughs> uh, I, and um, then I... That's when I left. I came ever since then. I'd been working in in this business, mm. or apart from the short spell I had working elsewhere when we were part of another group. Mm. But, uh, and do you think the experience you had, because it, it was a family business when you joined, and you were customer facing, so you either directly or indirectly had the freedom that you now allow your colleagues to be able to make decisions without perhaps the recrimination of a boss in the background. Do you think that's what's helped shape the culture now, is that having that freedom showed you the impact that it could have on well, I think, the business? I mean, every business in in the 60s was pretty uh, command and control and had lots of rules. I mean, mm. we, we had the standing orders for shoe repair shops, right. and standing orders for retail shops. Everyone had to do it in a set way. Okay. Pretty rigid. Uh, so I don't think it really came from that. No, I, I thinking about it, you know, the fact I'm so useless at doing <laughs> practical stuff, right. I know my wife banned me from any decorating. It was uh -huh. just brilliant. Um, <laughs> I, I, if I knocked a nail in that course, of, I'd do one job at home, uh -huh. and that meant about three, three craftsmen <laughs> had to come to clear up the mess. <laughs> so I, the fact I, I, I couldn't, when I started to run the shoe repair business, which I, I'd never really been involved in, although I was chief exec of the whole thing, uh -huh. but that, they, they were very, they're a very self-contained unit, and uh, they ran it very well. But when I, I got more involved in it, I probably realised that 
I couldn't cut a key and I couldn't right. repair a shoe. Okay. And so, but it was a business that didn't have the sort of strategic thinking or marketing. So I could do mm -hmm. that bit. And I worked out that to survive, a cobbler had to cut keys. Mm -hmm. And then that moved on to watch repairs. I mean, that, yeah. that's how we got to where we are. We mm -hmm. did that ahead of anyone else. So that was good. Um, but also, I think, as I couldn't do the job, uh, I wasn't going to tell them what to do. I would give them the freedom to do it. Right. And I think that helped. Mm. But it was also very much this thing of realising that it depended so much on great service. Mm -hmm. and that was You could only get that by freeing people up and having yeah. the right personalities to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And your son, James, is now the chief exec. Of Has been for 17 business. years. And how easy or difficult a transition was that for you and him? Because you, you wrote a book... I wrote, I wrote a book called Dear James, and this was before he took on the role. Mm. This was really, uh, that was the first book I wrote. And I, I wrote the book, actually, this is the honest version. Uh, I, I wrote the book because uh, a guy I was working with on the sort of general image of the business, I, was, I said to him, look, we did lots of really interesting stuff. Mm. We're, we're quite innovative. And yet everyone thinks we're the sort of... Uh, armpit of the, the uh, <laughs> high street you know, they're right. hidden in back corners with yeah. the smelly ones with the noisy ones we're right. unacceptable and so on and you know, quite difficult to attract people to work for us because we've got and he said well why, I, one thing we could do to improve the image is to write a book about it mm. I'll get someone to do it and I said you won't right then I was going to write a book <laughs> about this business I'm the one who's going to write the book and so but then I so I wrote this book about all the good things we do to make the business happen. Mm. And I thought that was a bit arrogant, really. Right, well, okay. So that's why, I, but then I thought about the title for the book being Dear James. Mm. And suddenly it wasn't arrogant anymore yeah. because I was just writing, writing down the things that should never be forgotten for uh -huh. the benefit of my son mm. who was going to eventually take over take the role. Son, yeah. So that's why it was called Dear James. And uh, it wasn't long after that that... James took over, so probably about three years later mm. when, when he became chief exec. Right. Um, I was helped a lot by non-exec non uh, director, Patrick, who's a really close friend as mm -hmm. well, who also was very well respected by my late wife. Okay. So I mean, I'm very keen, you see, but suddenly you find that it, if I've, once my son becomes the chief executive, mm -hmm. I'm living with the chief executive's mother. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> and she's got an interest in, I mean. Yeah. So, uh, but it was, I mean, it was, it was a no-brainer, really, because James was so talented. I mm. mean, I, he, I knew he was better than I ever would be. Right. He was much more hands-on. And, uh, and quicker. I mean, he was younger, you know, mm. by that time. So, uh, so that was, I mean, I was over 60, so right. it, was, it was just about the perfect time yeah. for him. Do, do you think the process of writing the book helped with that transition? Was it a coincidence? That it no, was I, think, I, I, I think that the, I spent a lot, lot of time chatting to this mate of mine who's non-exec uh -huh. and about how... I mean, the problem really was in terms of the rest of the people in the business uh -huh. who who needed to be brought up to speed and realised to realise that a thirty one year old can run a business because yeah. I ran the business when I was thirty one uh -huh. so yep. I, I knew it could happen mm. and it's when and, and there became a natural time when his predecessor was about to retire so it, it was the right time to do it and um, it just put more pace into things mm. and, uh, and James is 
just as uh, I mean, believe we believe in exactly the same culture, uh-huh. and that's so important. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, I think, quite different from most businesses. Yeah, I'd agree. Which is why, you know, we don't recruit from outside, other mm. than into accountancy and IT. Mm. Just the odd specialist role, but right. for, as far as the field's concerned, we do not have not one of our area team, area managers, assistant area managers, regional managers, the whole whole lot, uh-huh. sales directors, they are all started at the bottom of the business. Wow, okay. Because it's such a unique way we do yeah. it. I mean, it's just, uh, because everyone gets it. Mm. They, they, they know that you you don't tell people what to do. You mm-hmm. look after the people. They recognize what a 9 or a 10 out of 10 is mm-hmm. and all that. Yeah, and then that helps, again, with the, the retention of those. And, and if they see a progression in front of them, mm. then yeah. it's something that they yeah. can... No, I mean, they, they, there is a... A clear route for most of them to go a long way up the ladder. Mm, fantastic. And you mentioned your um, late wife and the influence that she had on on you personally and the business. I think what's often forgotten in um, family business or when people are giving advice to family business is the influence of somebody who is such um, an instrumental character in the family's lives but not directly involved in the business, I mean, in terms of, of ownership or role. Would that be fair to say that Alex had a, a very positive impact on the culture and, and the work that well, you've she done? Had, she had. She made an enormous difference uh, in all sorts of ways. I mean, one. I mean, she did work for a few weeks just before we got married as a shop assistant right. in one of our shops. That was it. But she came along to a lot of the events, and obviously the long service things, mm-hmm. and, uh, and we had, which we changed from being. In hotels, we started to bring people to our house. Uh-huh. We had lots of marquee events, presentation awards. She got to know the people really well. Um, but she made some really, really big calls in terms of critical times when I had big decisions to make, uh-huh. like whether I was going to float the, the buyout. She was absolutely convinced it was the right thing to uh-huh. do. Uh, when we had the big boardroom bust-up, she just threw me into the battle. She wouldn't right. let me lie, lie down and okay. let, it, let it happen. Uh, and when I wanted to float the business on the stock market, she told me I was an absolute idiot mm-hmm. and stopped me doing it yeah. because because she said, you'll never be able to get on with these people. And, uh, and that she, would have been the right decision, wouldn't oh, it? Oh, God. It would have, the thing would have, we would have lasted about three years. Mm. And could, I mean, it, it, you, I don't think... The city would have understood this sort of business. No. I mean, so that get and we wouldn't have been able to just use the, the sort of, I suppose, quite maverick style that we used to run mm. it. Um, so that that was very important. Mm. Um, but she was very, she was a role model. She gave the, she gave the business quite a social conscience, really, yeah. because uh, she spent her life looking up, helping other people. I mean, mm-hmm. particularly as a. A foster carer to yeah. ninety kids, but yeah, I was uh, gonna come on to but that. there are plenty of other things she did outside. Of, mm. uh, just she had, she just sat sat at the end of our uh, kitchen table most days with a notepad and a phone, and, mm. and she was just she was a helpline for oh. those people, really. Yeah. But it, there's no doubt that that attitude is one of the reasons why we do lots of. Different things, to, yeah. like like we're doing a, a lot of work at the moment with with schools to mm-hmm. make sure schools understand how to look after looked after children. And, and uh, I I think slowly we're having an influence on the way schools are run. Mm. Um, uh, but also, of course, we 
part of our attitude came the reasons why we've been enthusiastic about employing more people from direct from prison. Mm. And, uh, so uh, that was very much. But see, James has got a lot of Alex in him. They, they yeah. have a similar way they think. And, uh, mm. and obviously the influence of parenting it, it influences yeah. people's And I think you've probably noticed that you look, look at... Uh, on our, on our badges, most of them, it says part of the family since, mm -hmm. and that's yeah. uh, doesn't on mine. I like yours there, semi-retired. Yeah, semi-retired, <laughs> yeah, that's right. At, uh, but we do regard the colleagues in the business and our colleagues, not staff, because we're all we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. um, but they're part of the family. Yeah. And, and although we do things with schools and we do things with prisons, we it interested in outside things are happening outside the business, Number one for us is to look after the people who work with us. Mm. And there are a number of things that we do uh, to help them through their problems mm. in life. And you mentioned um, fostering, and um, it, it, I have a, um, a vested interest, I guess, in, in this subject because my parents were also foster parents. So okay. through my childhood, yeah. we well, fostered. Short, short term foster parents? Yeah, short term okay, foster so parents. So we were. Yeah. Um, so, during my childhood, I had many different children coming into yeah. the house that then were part of the family, and they were various different um, stages in their development, I guess. There were some that had obviously come from very difficult backgrounds, mm. some that had been passed from foster home to, to foster home and, and were finding that very difficult. We had uh, one child from four months old until they were two and a half, so yeah. Yeah, you yeah, know, they, yeah. they had... Well, I'm very familiar with all yeah, this. Yeah, so yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's something that... Um, you know, it's not it's not easy. Um, I know you, you were saying Alex probably bore the the, the vast majority oh, she, of that. It, it, that was really her job. I was very much a mm. support role. But it would have still had um, an impact on you, both both positive and and potentially negative in terms of the the time and care that's needed in in doing that, whilst also running a successful business. So, it, it's uh, or was it a difficult balance to to find, or was it something that you found came quite? I don't I don't remember it seeing. Be, it being a conflict, uh, I it became quite a that the fostering actually sort of was the priority because if 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 I had to go to uh, a, a planning meeting or whatever mm -hmm. it was, I'd cancel what was happening in the business to go to that. I mean that mm -hmm. because that's what that's what you do for your own children. So yeah. uh, and we're in that role. Uh, it took me an awful lot north. It equipped me better to look after the people in the business, there's absolutely mm. no doubt about yep. that. I, I mean, I don't know how you felt as being a, the, one, one of the children that, whose, whose home got invaded mm. and having to share your parents with, uh, with more children. Yeah. Uh, it must have, in some ways, not been that welcome. But in the end, all my... The children that were born to me, they, they all do things which are very much connected with what happened uh, uh, of the caring thing. Mm. My daughter's a teacher. My, uh, my other son, Edward, went went into uh, first the law and then politics. Right. All about, he was, he was a minister for vulnerable children mm -hmm. and families. So, right. I mean, he's one of the probably leading experts on the whole sort of yeah. childcare thing. And that came out of the fact that he mm. lived with a lot of, yeah. lot of foster children. And I think it is difficult. I mean, obviously, I was relatively young when, when my parents fostered, so to me it was just normal. It was That yeah. was how life yeah. was. It wasn't that I'd known this life before yeah. and then all of a sudden it was, was being taken over. 
but but it is also difficult when th- those children are are there temporarily. They they, well, they get, move just, on and, and well, you get used to that after a bit. Yeah, I think I mean, you know that they're there for a sh- short period yeah, of time. Yeah, we got quite attacked because we we although it was short term, we had some for for years rather than yeah. They the changed the, the system. Changed. It was only it was six months. That was the end of it when uh, we okay. started. Right, and then and the last lot we had. There was a sibling group of three. They stayed for certainly two and a half years, mm. and not far off three, I think. Yeah, incredible, isn't it? It was because the the whole machine t- took longer to wind. Mm. But also, it they didn't tend to, the ones we had didn't tend to move on to another foster home, another foster home. Right. They mostly went on either back to mum, back to dad, right. or to a long-term foster home, or to, or to be adopted. Mm. So... Uh, so that was good that, yeah. that we were just the gap between one part of their life and the mm. next. And the, there are synergies, I think, in terms of the, the management style and culture within the the Timpson Group and the fostering environment. Not not to, precisely, but in terms of the fostering, it's, it's creating uh, an environment that is safe for mm. the children to be able to to exactly. grow and flourish in. And it seems as if not in a childlike way, but in a very adult way, you're creating that within the group to say that you've got permission to say yes. If you're going to say no, that's probably well, what you very, need to... very smart of you to spot that. Mm. Because, I mean, one thing we, we didn't... No one told us about when we started fostering and adopt, adopting as well. It was about attachment mm. and, and, and how a poor attachment in early life can be the, yep. the reason why this behaviour starts and, and that these kids do not feel confident mm. about themselves yep. or the people around them and there's lack of self-esteem lack of self-confidence and uh and you people need that attachment yeah completely not just as a child but they need it from the family all the way through from their neighbors from their friends and also from work mm. and there is no doubt that the way we do it because people tell me when i go around i i feel so much better coming into a job where i'm trusted yeah. to look after my own shop mm and I'm valued. Mm. And so you want a business to feel like home, yes. which is where the family bit comes in, mm-hmm. because you're providing some of that attachment which is really good for someone's well-being. Mm. And again, that would be harder to achieve if you weren't a family-owned it's, business. Yeah, no, it, it, it's easier. It's easier because a family business tends to be very consistent in leadership. Mm-hmm. I mean, James has been running it for 17 years. Yeah. I, st- I started actually running the business 42 years ago. Okay. So between the, between the over the last 42 years, people have known nothing other than myself and James. Mm-hmm. Most businesses, they change every, what, three, five years. Yeah, I think the average is... And it could be a completely so. different culture. Yeah. They all come in with their own... We won't do that. Mm. We, we will only bring in people who understand our yeah. culture. Gotcha. Uh, so, so that makes a big difference for mm. family business, and also I think you tend to get in family businesses a feeling of getting to know people mm-hmm. and actually wanting to meet people. Like yeah. you know, we go around all the shops. And yeah. sort of, I'll be. I've got a group coming today. We call it the residential. There have been new people who started with us in the last six months. Right. We come coming groups of fifty-five, something uh-huh. like that. And right at the beginning, I. It's either myself or James go we go and do the first hour. Fantastic. And I go and have a word with all of them. Yeah. Ask them where they're from and I'll tell them something about their shop uh-huh. and then we do a few questions a bit about the history Fantastic. of the business. So so they're they're hearing it, they're actually meeting us. Yeah. And you don't get that in not right. the family business thing 
does create that, I think. Mm. And also, rather just consistency and, and the, 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 the uh, higher profile of the colleagues, you don't, we, we certainly don't, have outside shareholders mm. of any sort. Right. We don't even have to worry about the bank because we've got, we always make sure we've got cash. And so we are totally responsible for what we do. Mm. We have no one yep. saying you can't do that yeah. other than, I suppose, the government, health yeah. and safety, all these yes, uh, risk and uh, compliance people who, and a lot of that we we look to see what really is required. Mm -hmm. And if if it isn't absolutely required and we're not going to go to prison and we don't agree with it, we're yep. going to do it our way. Mm. We have uh, the same, by day I'm a financial planner and we have a set of regulations mm. or, or, or standards we have to, to abide mm. by. And then in the middle we have compliance teams who tell us different versions of that. And I imagine it's the same in anything, with, particularly with health and safety. There's the law and then there's people's interpretation of that. And actually, yeah. if you spend the time reading it. Yeah, if you're not careful, it's gold plating, it's called, isn't it? Yes. The, uh, <laughs> the lawyers and the, the consultants who are trying to make money out of you by yeah. adding much more to it to make sure <laughs> that you're you're totally safe and yes. protected from the legislation. And they're not liable at all. If what no, of course not. Of course not. <laughs> Fantastic. So... Um, just conscious of, of, of time, and you, you very generously um, given us your time this morning, just a couple of things I wanted to, to ask you. If you were rewriting the Dear James book now, would you change anything? Well, I have written a few more books since yeah. then, so and I've probably, I think I've, I've I hopefully have made it, the, more, the latter ones have been less complicated. Right. Uh, because I think simple's terribly important. Mm. And... If you're finding it difficult to describe, then there's probably there's something wrong with it. Yes. And in actual fact, people from the outside don't realise how, sim how simple our business is. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, it's a very complicated business doing all these services yeah. uh, when you think about it. And that's probably another reason why the easy way to do it is say, get on with it. Yep. You do it your way. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I tell you an example of how complicated it is. I, a large number of our branches only have one colleague working in it at any one time. Right. We we have an area in our terms, we've got well, it's 50 something areas that um, is generally about 50, 60 shops. And there's one person in the area team who's responsible to make sure that we've always got someone in one of our shops. Okay. Okay. Every day. Yeah. From 8.30 in the morning. We don't have a system for that. Okay. Other businesses would have a great computer yes. thing, and work. but it's so much better to leave the individual who knows, knows all the people, knows who can drive a car, knows who's, who likes likes working Sundays, has an mm -hmm. objection to working Sundays, uh, what needs the money because they're trying to save for whatever reason, yeah. save or work will work seven days if necessary, mm -hmm. uh, and all these quirky things knows where they live, knows yeah. who's the nearest to, mm -hmm. how we do. And as long as people are sick at by half past seven in the morning and phone in, <laughs> we'll make sure that every one of our okay. shops has got someone yeah. because they do it. They all do it in different ways. Mm -hmm. But that's that's an example of how you make it simple. Yeah. But you also lose the personality of the, the brand if you then start bringing in a system that uses an algorithm to tell you the, well, I the think, same information. I think that really interesting things happen. You talk about the brand. You know we don't. We don't have a marketing department. Yeah, and you won a marketing award recently, I think. Uh, well, or, no, or, or, no, James. Uh, I was saying last week, James went and talked to the market, some marketing ah, thing. Okay. He started off saying, "I really 
don't know why I'm here uh -huh. because we don't have a marketing <laughs> department. Yeah. Uh, um, but in actual fact, we've managed without marketing at all, mm. probably to build up a very strong brand. Fantastic. I yeah, guess you know, everyone seems yeah. to have heard of us. Yeah, and. Mainly by well, talking like we are now. And, uh, I, I have a column in newspaper. Mm -hmm. I do the odd radio program about either you know, one facet or another of the business. Mm -hmm. And um, decided some time ago that the graphics in the shops, are no point in talking about shoe repairs and keys. Our graphics talk about the way we run the business. Mm -hmm. And customers are interested in that. Yeah. And they know us for the fact, oh, you're, you're the company that employs people from prison, you're mm -hmm. the people who have this upside-down management thing. Yep. They don't quite know what it is, but they've heard mm -hmm. about it. Yep. And the nice thing is so many of you say, oh, you're the business got that really nice man in our shop down the road. Mm -hmm. yep. And that's what you're after. Absolutely. That's, that's gold dust, isn't yeah. it? That's, yeah. that's fantastic. So brilliant. Last question for me then is, if you could disseminate your years of knowledge and experience into one tip, for other family businesses, what would it be? Oh, God. Well, I mean, I tried one tip. Uh, well, I think it depends, the success of every business depends on picking the right people. Mm -hmm. And that also includes the family. Right. You've got to pick the right person from the family to do the job. Mm -hmm. If there isn't anyone from the family who can run it, then you might you probably think as to whether you want to continue to have it as a family yeah. business. But be brave. Mm -hmm. And if there's someone in the family who ain't right, suggest they go and do something else. Yeah, fantastic. John, thank you very much indeed for your time. It's been an incredible um, interview for me. Um, real privilege to, to be able to talk to you. So um, thank you very much. Fine. Thanks very much too. Well, there we have it. That was my chat with John. Um, again, I think you'll agree it was a, a very insightful um, chat with him. Uh, I love his attitude to um, management, to empowerment, to creating an environment for employees to thrive. Um, I think that's something that we can all take away from the interview today. Um, as we mentioned during the show itself, um, Sir John's late wife, Alex, was very, very passionate about um, fostering and helping children from um, perhaps uh, poorer backgrounds to uh, get a, a, a better start in life. And uh, following her death, they um, established the Alex Timpson Trust. So uh, in thanks to Sir John for his time, I've made a, a small donation to the Alex Timpson Trust. And I have provided links in the show notes to allow anyone uh, who's listened to this and uh, was touched by um, John's interview to do the same. So if you would like to make a small donation, that would be great. Show a bit of appreciation to John for giving his time. Um, the links are in the show notes. Uh, so until next time, thank you very much. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to leave us a review, please feel free to do so on iTunes if you want to get in touch, you can find out more information at www.fambizpodcast.com. We'll see you again soon.